Blog Talk Radio. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to the Michael Cutler Hour. I am your host, Michael Cutler. It is Friday the 13th, 2020. Goodness gracious, talk about Friday the 13th. If you have tristidecophobia, uh, maybe it makes sense that it's today that the president declared a national emergency because of the coronavirus. Frankly, I'm not superstitious, uh, but we do need to be careful. This is certainly a dangerous development. But I think it highlights, it underscores just how fragile we are for all of our conceits, for all of this notion that we have that somehow we're in control. Um, I think it's sobering. I, I hope it helps to generate a bit of humility among the people who think they're the masters of the universe. There's a wonderful Yiddish expression that when you translate it, says that man makes plans and God laughs. Um, Carl Sagan, and I did this on my podcast for Dennis Michael Lynch, DML News, wrote about uh, the pale blue dot. And it was absolutely an amazing um, piece of work that he did because uh, if you remember Carl Sagan, the astrophysicist, and by the way, I had the distinct privilege of admitting him when I was an inspector back at John F. Kennedy Airport in the 70s. And back then, Sagan was something of a regular on the Johnny Carson Tonight Show. And my uh, childhood, I began teaching myself astronomy in the third grade. So to meet Carl Sagan, to me, was a big deal. I also, also met Arthur Clarke, who wrote 2001, A Space Odyssey. Uh, truly amazing people. But Sagan was involved with the Voyager space program, you know, where we sent space probes out of the solar system, and they're still functioning. They were launched in the mid-'70s. Think about that. And we're still getting data back. And, it, and one of them, I believe the closer one, it takes something on the order of 17 hours for a radio signal to reach the spacecraft traveling at the speed of light. To put that in perspective, it takes light from the sun eight minutes to reach the Earth, but it takes another 17 hours to get out to where Voyager now is, and we're still able to communicate with it. And I remember reading that the transmitter has about as much power as the light bulb in your refrigerator. If you want to talk about American ingenuity and American genius, uh, boy, oh, boy. And that's why I get nuts when I hear this nonsense about why we need to import the world's best and brightest for America to lead. Folks, where I come from, and I'm from Brooklyn, we have a term for the world's best and brightest. We call them Americans. And when you listen to the politicians from both political parties, uh, it really makes my head want to explode. And look at what we've done uh, because we're stupid and greedy. Uh, and, and by the way, at, at some point, I, I don't have it in front of me, but maybe next week I'll read you an excerpt from the Pale Blue Dot because the point that Sagan made is that he had Voyager turn around and take a picture of the inner solar system planets, including Earth. And Earth showed up as this pale blue dot less than a pixel in width. A similar photo, by the way, was taken by the Cassini space probe before they sent it crashing into Saturn's atmosphere. 
<clears throat> and you realize that that is our home. And, and Sagan very eloquently says, you know, any person who ever lived, every person who ever lived, lived their life on that tiny dot. And think about how many people were made to suffer, how many rivers of blood flowed so that a tyrant could control a tiny fraction of that tiny dot for a moment in time. It really is sobering. You know, sometimes I think of the human species as an ant colony, and along comes some guy with big feet and steps on the colony. Well, nature has ways of stepping on this colony that we call the human species. And I'm sure we're going to get through it just fine. There's been other uh, viral attacks. We, we, we've suffered through them all. Um, and we survive, and the technology has never been better than it is today, but we do have to take precautions. But I hope that this will serve as a reminder for our frailty as humans, because we seem to sometimes, not all of us, but some of our alleged leaders, these guys who think they're bigger than life, but they aren't. Uh, Leona Helmsley famously remarked, the little people pay taxes, meaning she didn't. She had millions and millions or maybe billions of dollars in real estate, and she thought she was hot stuff. Ultimately, she became worm food, just like everybody else. I hate to put it in those terms. But we really need to have a sense of humility, folks. And we really need to look at each other as brothers and sisters. The animosities that are spreading rampantly throughout our society, very upsetting. People not talking to people because of political beliefs. Do you not believe in the First Amendment? I have many friends that I disagree with. They're my friends, not in spite of them, maybe because of the fact that we're, we feel free enough to speak our thoughts and not attack each other. Between social media and the lunacy that goes on in the news media where news programs aren't news programs but food fights, we've become so polarized, so willing to charge at one another rather than sit down and respect one another. I may not agree with you, but that doesn't mean that I don't respect you. And if I disagree with you, I hope that that doesn't mean you're not going to respect me because we are entitled to differences of opinion. It could be something as trivial as whether or not we like chocolate or vanilla or ice cream or something far more significant when we talk about abortion or school prayer or the First Amendment. Well, the Second Amendment, in fact, with all the demonstrations over the Second Amendment, and I do support the Second Amendment, but I also believe there's got to be some common sense to that. Uh, why are there no demonstrations about the First Amendment? There's a wonderful song that Frank Sinatra sings. He's not the only one, but it, it, it's, the, ter it's the, the words to what is America to me. And in one part of that song, he says, it's the right to speak your mind out. That's America to me. Why is that such a big deal? Why is it that an American wearing a hat that says, make America great again, may wind up getting physically assaulted? Make America great again. Boy, there's a good reason to want to kill somebody. How crazy have we become? We've lost our collective minds. We need to cool it down and think. Think clearly. If you want to have the right to be heard, then you need to respect other people's right to be heard. And you don't have to agree with them. I'm a lifelong registered Democrat. And yet the Tea Party gave me the privilege of addressing them three separate years, one year after the other. In fact, uh, the first time I spoke, it was during the presidential election year when Obama was running for re-election. And the Tea Party 
very conservative in South Carolina. I'm a Brooklyn boy, you know, Democrats. They gave me prime time on stage right after Newt Gingrich, and they gave me 25 minutes, and I got a standing ovation. That's what America is supposed to be about. We don't have to agree. God help us if we do have to agree, because then we will be indistinguishable from communist China and communist Cuba. Freedom of speech means freedom of thought. And when people force you to use words that are false, this whole debate about the word alien, this isn't the equivalent of an N-word. You know, I'm very politically correct if politically correct means not using language of hate. But who's the arbiter to decide what hate is? The N-word is clearly such a disgusting term. There are other terms like it. But there are people out there that would have you believe that the term alien is also hate speech, and it's not. It's a legal term, and I've discussed it on this program before. It simply means any person, not a citizen or national of the United States. There's no insult there. There's no hatred there. But under the banner of banning hate speech, we really wind up with something far more deadly. It's called censorship. This is Orwellian newspeak. Orwellian newspeak. And I've never seen our politicians stoop to the levels that we've seen, attacking each other, attacking a president. I don't care if you like Trump's policies or not. There are things he does that I very much agree with, and there are things he does I disagree with. That's how it works. But I'm entitled to my opinion, and I should be able to voice it without fear of someone physically or verbally attacking and assaulting me. I hope that if anything good comes out of the coronavirus, it will be humility. It will be humility. The people will understand that we're fragile, that we're all here for a short visit, and that we do need to look out for each other. We do need to respect one another. It's so easy to attack each other um, anonymously through the Internet, through social media, which I don't even bother with. I'm a techno-dinosaur, okay? I believe if you're going to have a conversation, do it face-to-face. We've lost that ability. We live in dangerous times, and we create our own risks when we fail to respect one another and try to look out for each other um, and and understand that as Americans, uh, we are our brothers and our sister's keeper. Just something for you to think about. And I've been watching the political campaigns, and, and I have very big issues with all of this. And, you know, last week I talked about my article, um, which Front Page Magazine was Comprehensive Immigration Reform, should, rename the, should be renamed the Overwhelm America Act. And in it, I spoke about Bernie Sanders and how Bernie had actually, uh, back in 2006, 2007, taken a very different position on immigration. Uh, in fact, I quoted Bernie in my article back then. I'm going to read this now, and then I, I want you to understand The reason I'm mentioning it now is because immigration is playing a role right now with the coronavirus and the threats that we're facing from this terrible disease. So here's a quote from that article, and I hope after the program you'll read the article, maybe consider um, forwarding it to other people. And there's there's two articles that were posted on Dennis Michael Lynch News, DML News, because I do a weekly podcast. We we cut it down to one, uh, one day a week that I do for him. And this past Wednesday, two days ago, Two of the things I discussed on my podcast became the subject for articles that Dennis posted at dmlnews.com, and it was predicated, to begin with, 
with this article that I did for Front Page Magazine about Bernie Sanders and comprehensive immigration reform. Politicians constantly promise, before I read this, I want to make this point. I made this point with Newt Gingrich also. Politicians, when they run for office, always promise that they're going to help to create new jobs. New jobs, new jobs, new jobs. Improve salaries, help the working Americans, on and on and on. And most of the time, it's empty promises, empty, empty promises. If this was a business, you could sue them for malfeasance. They know they're lying through their teeth, but they lie. And some Americans are dumb enough to not see through the lies. And and let me give you an example, because Bernie Sanders is now calling for basically the end of immigration law enforcement. Comprehensive reform, let's legalize millions of aliens. And as I told you last week, I believe that if we ever enacted comprehensive immigration reform, over 100 million new alien cards would have to be issued. We would wind up with at least 100 million new lawful immigrants. The numbers would be off the charts. We would wind up with... 50 or 60 million uh, kids coming to our schools overnight who would have to be educated, and our school systems are crumbling. You have teachers who aren't earning enough money dipping into their uh, ragged pockets to come up with enough money to buy school supplies because their schools don't have the money to buy the basic essentials that they need in the classroom. This is America, folks, not a third-world country. We're supposed to be the best and the bravest. What in the world are we doing? What would happen if we had comprehensive reform? It would overwhelm us. This isn't a statement of xenophobia. I don't care if the kids came from England or Israel. We can't deal with an influx of 60 million new students. It would melt the system. It makes no sense. We have to understand that countries, just like families, have limitations. How many families sit around the table and say, well, is this the year that we take that vacation or is this the year that we trade in our car? We can't do both. What are we going to do? Is this the year we get a new refrigerator or is this the year that we buy a new television? We have to make those choices because we don't have the money, the wherewithal to just write the checks and get whatever the hell we want. Unless, of course, we're we're Bloomberg or, 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 or any of these characters who think they're the masters of the universe. Countries have limitations. And it's so obvious that Bernie Sanders understands this. It's so obvious that when he stands there and says, I'm going to help middle-class families and the working poor, he knows he's a liar. Because if he passed comprehensive immigration reform, if he became president and signed it into law, everything he promised is impossible. Can't be done. You may as well tell people they could jump off the Empire State Building, flap their hands and, and, and arms, and they could fly like birds. And here's why. Let me, let me read this to you. On January 19, 2020, BuzzFeed News published a report. Here's the title. He has made wild shifts. So Bernie Sanders has changed his approach to immigration. And that article began with this excerpt. When Bernie Sanders joined the Senate, he and his allies and the labor movement took on a big target a new comprehensive immigration reform bill. Quoting, I believe we have a very serious immigration problem in this country, Sanders said during a 2007 press event with the AFL-CIO president, Richard Trumka, standing behind him. I think, as you've heard today, sanctions against employers who employ illegal aliens is virtually non-existent. Our border is very porous, and I think that at a time when the middle class is shrinking, the last thing we need 
is to bring over in a period of years millions of people into this country who are prepared to lower the wages for American workers. He's right. I could have written that paragraph and been comfortable with it. So when he stands there and says, if I become president, I'm going to help the working American. And you hear what he had to say about comprehensive immigration reform. And I assure you, in 2007, we didn't have nearly as many illegal aliens to contend, to contend with, if I can get the words out, as we do today. How can he make these statements? I'm tired of the liars. And whether you like Donald Trump or not, he kept his promise on just about every major issue. You may not like the fact that I made the statement. That's fine. Or you may agree with me. We're Americans. Get used to hearing positions that are in opposition to yours. And by the way, sometimes I listen to someone who disagrees with me, and their reasoning makes such inherent good sense that it alters my understanding of an issue. The trick is to go into discussions with an open mind and open ears. Because I don't have all the answers. And if someone tells you they have all the answers, you want my advice? Run for your life. Run fast. Nobody, nobody has all the answers. When the president, after he took office, said he was going to keep his promise. And what was his promise? He was going to prevent the entry of anybody who we couldn't properly screen. Now, his language is atrocious. My degree was in communications, arts, and sciences, and sometimes the choice of words that he uses gives me gray hair. It does. He needs much more nuance in the language. But if you look at what he did in terms of an executive order, his executive order was called Protecting the Nation from the Entry of Foreign Terrorists into the United States. And that's right. And he singled out six or seven countries where vetting was basically impossible. And he said, you know what, we absolutely should not be letting people into the United States if we're not able to properly screen them. And back then, the screening that he was concerned about was screening people as to their identity and possible affiliation with terrorist organizations. And he created an executive order. And I I went nuts when he did it because I thought, my gosh, he doesn't need an executive order under Title VIII, United States Code, Section 1182, small f in parenthesis, the president already has ample authority to keep out any aliens for essentially any reason. And certainly aliens who could not be vetted should not be allowed into the country. Let me read that section of law to you because this is really important. Again, this is Title VIII, United States Code, Section 1182F. And here's the quote. Whenever the president finds that the entry of any aliens or of any class of aliens into the United States would be detrimental to the interests of the United States, he may, by proclamation, and for such period as he shall deem necessary, suspend the entry of all aliens, or of any class of aliens as immigrants or non-immigrants, with or without green cards, here are temporary visas, or permanently. That's what they mean by immigrant versus non-immigrant. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that momentarily, about something that some of the wacko Democrats have done. And they're not wackos because they're Democrats. They're wackos because they're wackos, but they happen to be Democrats. Okay, so let's be clear. Let me go back and read this again so you understand this, because this is really a very important piece of law that the Democrats now want to erase. They want to alter it significantly. So let me read it again. 
Whenever the president finds that the entry of any aliens or of any class of aliens into the United States would be detrimental to the interests of the United States, he may by proclamation, and for such period as he shall deem necessary, suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens as immigrants or non-immigrants, or impose on the entry of aliens any restrictions that he may deem to be appropriate. That's the section of law. So what the president needed to do was not issue an executive order, but a proclamation. And I wrote about it. And I know that I've spoken with some of his people in the past, and perhaps they read what I wrote, or maybe they came to the conclusion on their own, one way or the other. But eventually the president went to the Supreme Court when he issued, when he issued an executive, not an executive order, but a proclamation. And lo and behold, the Supreme Court upheld the president's authority. Now, he's not the first president to do this. When our embassy was overrun in Tehran, Iran, by the radical Iranians, President Carter issued a proclamation to block the entry of Iranians into the United States. Nobody fainted. Nobody rioted. Nobody protested. And all immigration agents were then ordered to go out and try to locate all known locations for Iranians to make sure as to who they were and what they were up to. All of our work stopped, came to a screeching halt. If you were in the middle of a trial or in the middle of a major case, you had to go to your boss and get special clearance because we were operating directly out of orders that came from Jimmy Carter in the Oval Office that said, you will hunt down every damn Iranian you can find in the United States and figure out if they pose a threat to our safety. Period. End of story. 100% of your time will be dedicated, focused entirely, completely, and without exception, unless, as I say, you're in the middle of a trial or, or some major case, uh, you were going to focus every effort, every breathing moment, looking for Iranians. Well, today people say, my God, discriminatory. No, national security. They overran the embassy. They took 52 Americans hostage. I believe that was the number. One of whom was was the resident security officer who I'd worked with before he was posted to Iran. He was here in New York working for State Department, and we were working on a couple of fraud passport cases together. There's overlap in authority. It was appropriate. Obama used the same law. Other presidents have used the same law. And now all of a sudden, because this is, of course, President Trump, the enemy of the Democrats, I don't understand any of this, folks. I don't. This is madness. This is dangerous. This isn't what America is about. I remember when I studied history and social studies and then political science in college, everyone was in awe of the fact that every four years America underwent a revolution, the change of leadership, and it was a peaceful, lawful process. There was no gunfire. There was no violence. There was no rioting. What are we turning into? This is not how a democracy operates. Some of our fellow Americans have lost their collective minds. We need to just cool it down and think carefully about what we're saying and what we are doing. Our immigration laws exist to protect innocent lives, national security, public safety, our economy, and the well-being of our nation and our citizens. There's nothing in the immigration laws about race, religion, or ethnicity. If there were, I could not have enforced those laws for 30 seconds, let alone for the 30 years that I did working for the old INS. So we've got to understand what we're talking about. And so what is so remarkable is if you look at the, the people, the countries on the list, 
These were countries where we could not vet the citizens. That was on that initial list. By the way, this is now being used again today, and it's expanded to cover many countries in Europe because now the issue isn't terrorism, but the potential for disease. And if you go to Title VIII, United States Code, Section 1182, the same section of law, but go to the beginning of that section of law, you, it lists the categories of aliens who are to be kept out of the United States. And I began my career at Kennedy Airport as an immigration inspector. So that was the Bible that we worked with, okay? Who are we supposed to keep out? It begins with aliens with dangerous, communicable diseases. Folks, that's the coronavirus today. Aliens who are severely mentally ill, aliens who are criminals and spies and terrorists and human rights violators and war criminals and fugitives from justice and aliens who've been previously deported and aliens who engage in human trafficking and aliens who engage in drug smuggling. And then we get to aliens who would likely become a public charge. And the president has been using that law which has been on the books for many, many, many decades. This isn't brand new. He didn't come up with it. And aliens who, if they work, would displace American workers. In fact, prior to the Second World War, immigration law enforcement was primarily vested in the Labor Department to protect the jobs and wages of American workers. And for President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that was of particular significance because he was trying to get America out of the Great Depression. I don't know why they call it the Great Depression. It wasn't so great when you think about it. The horrific depression. And the idea was to make sure that Americans got the jobs. And the idea was to make certain that we didn't suppress wages by bringing in foreign workers who would work for less money. A fact that Mr. Sanders seems to understand quite well. But when we had Germans attempting to enter the United States surreptitiously, coming through U-boats, landing uh, off of Long Island and Florida... It was decided that immigration law enforcement needed to be vested not in the Labor Department, but the Justice Department, because now that it was clear that this was about national security. And yet today, immigration agents are vilified as thugs. After 9-11, immigration law enforcement was moved over to the Department of Homeland Security. I came to call the Department of Homeland Surrender the way it was concocted. But it was put into DHS because everybody knew that immigration law enforcement went to the heart of national security. And now you've got members of Congress, especially the Democrats, in fact, only the Democrats on this issue, saying, oh, you know, what we really need to do, is we have to get rid of immigration law enforcement. So now, if you want to enforce immigration laws, you're called a villain. You're called a thug by Governor Cuomo here in New York. Thugs. Thugs. Think about that. Uh, you know, I've testified before many congressional hearings. And after 9-11, in fact, and I've mentioned it on this program before, I was called by Sheila Jackson Lee to testify at a hearing that looked into how two of the dead terrorists, Mohammed Atta and Malwin al-Shehi, could have been granted authorization to attend flight school six months after the attacks. Those two pieces of trash were at the controls of the two airplanes that crashed into the World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan. And six months to the day after the attacks, because of a massive screw-up by the computer company hired by the government to send out notices of approval. I don't know why the hell the government can't do it. We're always eager to privatize. Sure, privatize so we can reward perhaps campaign contributors or whatever. Remarkable stuff goes on here, folks. It smells to high heaven. 
But in any event, these two thugs got permission to go to flight school. The owner of the flight school, a German citizen, by the way, by the name of Rudy Decker, contacted the government and said, what the hell are you doing? I just got letters from DHS telling me that I could train these two dead terrorists so that they can learn how to fly airplanes. Well, Congress freaked out, and I had just had a fight with Anthony Weenie, my alleged congressman back then. I was on my way home, and I got a call from Sheila Jackson Lee's counsel. Then he said to me, Mr. Cutler, I said, yes. He said, America needs you. Will you come to Washington next week? And I thought it was a goof. I said, who are you? Are you kidding me? And he told me the story. I almost hit the tree in front of my house. Well, I went and testified, and that hearing is now part of the permanent library at C-SPAN. I did a bunch of other hearings afterwards. And one of the hearings was held on May 5th, 2005, and it was on the title of the new dual missions of the immigration enforcement agencies, because the then chairman of the immigration subcommittee, a conservative Republican by the name of John Hostetler from Indiana, was outraged at the way that the Bush administration put DHS together. In fact, I believe I testified for John at least seven, eight, nine times, something like that. I, I was before the House. I was before the Senate. I went before a bunch of different subcommittee and committee hearings. But he called me up. His counsel called me up. He said, Mike, we need you to come down. Because I had explained to them how important interior enforcement was. It still is very important, and it's still all but ignored because of our corrupt government. Once you get past the border, either by running the border, stowing away on a ship, or violating the terms of your lawful admission, and that game of hide-and-seek, there's nobody to seek. And do you think that's an accident? And we're told the immigration system is broken. No, it's not broken. That's a big lie. Do any of you folks really think the immigration system is broken? It is the most efficient system in the entire federal government. It really is. You may think I've lost my mind, but immigration is the number one most efficient agency in the entire government of the United States of America. That is if you believe the immigration system is a delivery system that delivers an unlimited supply of cheap, exploitable labor, And I assure you, there's no compassion in exploitation, and there sure as hell is no compassion in slamming American workers and their wages and driving them into the ground. That's why you have homelessness. It delivers an unlimited supply of foreign tourists, an unlimited supply of foreign students. And in fact, I'm working on a piece now because it was just discovered by Betsy DeVos over at the Department of Education that our premier Ivy League schools over the past decade or so have accepted over a billion dollars, with a B, billion, from countries such as Russia, Iran, China, Saudi Arabia. Why is that kind of money coming into our schools from those foreign governments? And the bigger question, boys and girls, is what the hell are they getting in return for all that money? Very serious problem. It's especially serious when you realize how espionage has been perpetrated against America, how our enemies have been building up their military stockpiles and technological capabilities. And out of pure damn greed, we're now finding out that we're having a problem getting pharmaceuticals and antibiotics because there have been articles written that say that 80% of those vital materials are being manufactured in communist China. And I'm always going to start talking about China by using the right title, Communist China, Communist Dictatorship China, because that's what they are. Their leader has now declared himself a leader for life. By the way, Putin couldn't possibly be outdone, so they just changed the laws in Russia, if you haven't heard, so that Mr. Putin can stay in power at least for the next 12 years. 
And the day after that, welcome back to the Cold War, Russian uh, bombers were seen flying right off the Canadian coast, and U.S. and and, uh, Canadian fighter planes responded. They scrambled fighter planes to escort them to make certain that they didn't cross into Canadian airspace. And these are the countries pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into American high-tech schools. And we keep having professors at these universities being arrested by the FBI for lying to the schools about the money that they were getting from China and other countries. This is very dangerous, folks. It's leaving us vulnerable. How in the world George Herbert Walker Bush ever made China a most favorite trade partner is something that I will go to my grave never understanding. George Herbert Walker Bush was a war hero. He was a fighter pilot in the Second World War. He was shot down. He has to have understood that China is a communist country, and they are determined to run the world. What are we doing? Lenin said the capitalists will sell you the rope with which you will hang them. I've got to tell you, we are having a fire sale on rope. We most certainly are. Make no mistake about this. So after 9-11, you would have thought that George W. Bush would have understood just how critical immigration law enforcement is to national security. It was clear to everybody. I was involved in many of those hearings, including the way that DHS was put together. And I came to call it the customization of immigration law enforcement because U.S. Customs basically took charge of immigration enforcement. And Customs had absolutely less than nothing to do with immigration, other than the fact that Customs was a border agency, as was immigration, Their missions, their orientation, their perspectives, their areas of expertise could not have been more dissimilar. Customs was was involved with the collection of duties and tariffs. That's why it was under the Treasury Department. They didn't care about people. They they cared about merchandise, contraband, and tariffs and duties. Immigration dealt with people. So I want to read this to you because John Hostetler had tremendous chutzpah. He, Jim Sensenbrenner, Lamar Smith, um, a, a number of members of Congress, because they were Republicans and they looked at what the Republican president was doing and they had a meltdown. And when they did, my phone would ring and they would ask me to come down to Washington to testify. And of course, I did. I was happy to. I considered it um, a, a solemn obligation on my part to confront the president's terrible policies. We can disagree, folks. This is America. And I brought my kids to some of those hearings. They said, don't forget something. In other countries around the world, coming into a room like this, making the statements that I'm about to make, could get you imprisoned or executed. But this is America. We have freedom of speech. And we're allowed, in fact, compelled to criticize our leaders when we disagree. And when I see what's going on, where Americans are being attacked by fellow Americans for voicing an opinion, it scares the hell out of me. I have children. I have grandchildren. I fear for their future if we don't reverse this madness and stop and have respect for one another and understand that at the end of the day, I don't care if you're a member of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or the Hopping Kangaroo Party or no party at all, First and foremost, all of us should be united in trying to do what we believe is in the best interests of America and Americans. 
And if that makes me a nativist, as I'm sometimes accused because I worry about the damage we do to our own fellow citizens, then I will very proudly tell you damn right I'm a nativist. God damn it, I'm a nativist. Because America is the most diverse country on the planet. Race, religion, ethnicity. America is so diverse, and this is not about race. That's the usual accusation. So let me just read what what Hostetler had to say at that hearing back on May 5th, 2005. Let me just get to it. Bear with me one moment, folks. Okay. This is what you're going to hear now is John Hostetler. His words, I'm speaking them. I don't sound like John, but it's his words. The first two subcommittee hearings of the year examined in detail how the immigration enforcement agencies have inadequate resources and too few personnel to carry out their mission. The witnesses mentioned the lack of uniforms, badges, detention space, and the inevitable low morale of of frontline agents who are overwhelmed by the sheer volume of incoming illegal aliens. If this were not enough, these immigration enforcement agencies also face internal confusion resulting from dual or multiple missions in which immigration is all too often taken a back seat. Sadly, contrary to Congress's expectation, immigration enforcement has not been the primary focus of either of these agencies, and that is the subject of today's hearing. The Homeland Security Act, enacted in November 2002, split the former Immigration and Naturalization Service, or the INS, into separate Immigration Service and Enforcement Agencies, both within the Department of Homeland Security. The split had been pursued by Chairman Sensenbrenner based on testimony and evidence that the dual missions of the INS had resulted in poor performance. I'm just going to interject and tell you that part of the evidence was evidence that I had provided to him, his staff, and other members of Congress that the agency failed on 9-11 and why it failed on 9-11. So I was gratified to be part of that hearing, okay? Hostetler goes on and says, There was a constant tug of war between providing good service to law-abiding aliens and enforcing law against the lawbreakers. The plain language of the Homeland Security Act, Title D, creates a Bureau of Border Security and specifically transfers all immigration enforcement functions of the INS into it. Yet when it came down to actually creating the two new agencies, the administration, meaning the administration of George W. Bush, folks, the administration veered off course. Although the service functions of INS were transferred to USCIS, United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, the enforcement side of the INS was split in two, what is now Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, to handle interior enforcement and Customs and Border Protection to guard our borders. ICE was given all customs agents, investigators, intelligence analysts from the Treasury Department, as well as the Federal Protective Service to guard federal buildings and the federal air marshals to protect our airplanes, and finally, INS investigators. CBP was given all Treasury Customs Inspectors at ports of entry, agriculture inspectors from the Department of Agriculture, and INS inspectors. At no time during the reorganization planning was it anticipated by the committee, meaning the House Judiciary Committee, that an immigration enforcement agency would share its role with other enforcement functions, such as the enforcement of our customs laws. This simply results in the creation of dual or multiple missions that the Act sought to avoid in the first place. Failure to adhere to the statutory framework established by the Homeland Security Act has produced immigration enforcement incoherence that undermines the immigration enforcement mission central to DHS and undermines the security of our nation's borders and our citizens. 
<clears throat> it is not certain on what basis it was determined that customs and agriculture enforcement should become part of the immigration enforcement agency, except to require federal agents at the border to have more expertise and more functions. It is also unknown on what basis federal air marshals should become part of this agency, especially since it's been revealed that their policy is to not apprehend out-of-immigration status aliens when they're discovered on flights. If the mission of the Department of Homeland Security is to protect the homeland, it cannot affect its mission by compromising or neglecting immigration enforcement for customs enforcement. Now, here is the paragraph I want all of you to listen to really carefully. I hope you've been listening carefully up until now. But here, I really want you to take this in carefully and fully. And I will do it a little bit slower because it's so important. The 9-11 terrorists came to the United States without weapons or contraband. Added customs enforcement would not have stopped 9-11 from happening. What might have foiled al-Qaeda's plan was additional immigration focus, vetting, and enforcement. And so what is needed is the recognition that, one, immigration is a very important national security issue that cannot take a backseat to customs or agriculture. Two, Immigration is a very complex issue, and immigration enforcement agencies need experts in immigration enforcement. And three, now this is really super important, super important. The leadership of our immigration agencies should be shielded from political pressure to act in a way which could compromise the nation's Security. I'm going to reread that last sentence. The leadership of our immigration agency should be shielded from political pressures to act in a way which could compromise the nation's security. This was in 2005, four years, not quite three and a half years after the attacks of 9-11. Please understand what we're dealing with. How politicized has it become? Well, let me tell you how politicized it's become. Let me pull something up here. Just give me a moment. Just take me a second. I apologize. Um, darn. All right, it's going to take me a moment just to get to this one document that I think is really super important. I testified before Congress, before the Senate, back in March of 2013. That was my last hearing. And I was invited to testify by the then-ranking Republican, Chuck Grassley. And what was remarkable, because what you may not know is that when a party is out of power, they're really out of power. And Chris Kuhn was the acting chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee on that day. Now, what was so frustrating for me was they were looking at how do we make the immigration enforcement program consistent with the goals of America looking forward. And you would have thought that since I was the only guy on the panel, there were four witnesses who had immigration enforcement experience. And and remember, my background was pretty diverse. I was an immigration inspector. I was an adjudications officer doing the marriage interviews, did that for a year, uncovered a marriage fraud ring. And then I was in every single squad within the investigations branch. I was the first INS agent assigned to the Unified Intelligence Division of the Drug Enforcement Administration. And I spent the final 10 years of my career with the old INS 
at the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force. That's the outfit that took out El Chapo Guzman, uh, the Mexican drug trafficker, who, by the way, had turned New York into a hub for drug activities on the East Coast. So my background could not possibly have been more diverse. Plus, I had worked with Al D'Amato in the early 80s to create the aggravated felony reentry law that made unlawful reentry by criminal aliens a 20-year felony, which is now the most frequently prosecuted felony that is pursued by the Justice Department across the country. I also convinced Al D'Amato to go to the Reagan White House to start holding deportation hearings in the prisons so that if some guy is in jail for 20 years for armed robbery, rape, murder, arson, whatever, when he or she gets out of jail, they would have already been ordered deported. They could have appealed their order of deportation to the Supreme Court and back to their grandmothers, for all that mattered, and we could simply deport them. And then if they came back, the new law would kick in and they would face severe consequences, which would helpfully act as a deterrent. So once we got rid of people who were a threat to innocent people, they would not be likely to come back here again. So I understood this quite well. Guess how many questions I was asked at that hearing? Zero. And it was clear to me that the only reason I was there was because Senator Grassley wanted me to be there. Grassley wasn't able to attend the hearing. There were, I think, four other hearings going on at the time. So the Democrat-controlled Senate Judiciary Committee made certain to not ask me any questions at all. I got up. I did my five-minute speech back in the box. And I went up to the senator afterwards, and I said, you asked so many questions that I could have answered you in detail because of my extensive 30-year background, my career. I would like permission from you so that I could submit a declaration to supplement my prepared testimony because I had anticipated that I would be asked questions, and somehow you didn't see fit to ask me a single question. So he entertained my idea and said, fine, Mr. Cutler, submit a document. Of course, the media is not there for that. The public doesn't get to see it. And then Senator Grassley sent me written questions, which I also responded to. So all told, I probably provided 40 or 45 pages as as an attachment to the the record of that hearing. But it, it went largely unnoticed by design. And you would think that the Democrats, as much as the Republicans, would be concerned about immigration law enforcement, given its correlation, its nexus to national security, public safety, jobs of Americans, public health. Uh, You'd be hard-pressed to find any issue that doesn't get significantly hammered. But the trick was they didn't want to hear the truth. The truth seems to be a problem for some people, doesn't it? There's been an effort underway to create a piece of legislation now by the, by the Democrats called the No. The title is interesting because it stands for National Origin-Based Anti-Discrimination for Non-Immigrants Act. And when I looked at the title, I almost fell over. And the only reason I was aware of it is because the Democrat leadership, the Republican leadership in the House was asking the House Democrats to not bring this bill to the floor in the middle of the coronavirus because the president is trying to keep people out of the country who uh, pose a threat to public health. Of course, it's not going to be signed. The the Senate isn't going to go along with this, I don't believe. But the point of the matter was the timing is lousy. But it's about undermining the president because we've become so damn contentious that this isn't about what's right or wrong, but what's left or right. This is a food fight, and lives hang in the balance, and lives are being lost. 
sanctuary cities, turning criminals loose that go out and rape and kill, gangbangers that are out there, the heroin flowing across the borders. Uh, Folks, this isn't xenophobia. This isn't xenophobia. Are you xenophobic if you lock your door at night, especially if the police warn you that there's burglars and home invaders wandering around, especially after the sun goes down? But what's so remarkable about the title of this bill, National Origin-Based Anti-Discrimination for Non-Immigrants Act, I mean, does that mean it's okay to discriminate against immigrants, people with green cards? I don't know. You have to wonder. Were they just trying to come up with a cutesy name for the bill, and the only way that they could come up with an end is to use the word non-immigrant? Because there's a very big, 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 big difference between an immigrant and a non-immigrant. A non-immigrant comes on a temporary visa, a tourist visa, a student visa, a work visa. An immigrant is an alien with a green card. If they were really concerned about all immigrants, then it should have been National Origin-Based Anti-Discrimination for Immigrants Act. But I guess they needed an end. Or maybe this is just part of their abhorrence for people with green cards as well as U.S. citizens. Hard to tell. The way they've been conducting themselves, the statements they've been making, perhaps they really hate people who have green cards. They'd rather have people here perhaps illegally. I don't know. I'm just trying to understand what's in their heads. Because they gave this piece of garbage bill the title, National Origin-Based Anti-Discrimination for Non-Immigrants Act. Non-immigrant. Unbelievable. And it starts out, this is from, and this is on uh, Chris Coons' website, Senator Coons from Pennsylvania. President Trump's Muslim ban was based on animus, and Congress should not allow this discriminatory abuse of executive authority to continue. Folks, I can't read into President Trump's mind, and I'm not going to profess to understand what he's thinking. But when you hear the words, it's pretty clear that the issue wasn't about Muslims. It was about people who couldn't be vetted. And point of fact, Indonesia is not on the list of countries that, whose citizens couldn't enter the United States. Nor is India, nor is Pakistan. Now, why is that significant? Because Indonesia is a Muslim-majority country and by itself has about as many citizens as all the countries on that list of countries that were on that executive order. So if President Trump was trying to keep Muslims out of the United States, he was doing a piss-poor job because he left out Indonesia. India and Pakistan are the second and third Uh, largest Muslim population countries on the planet. So those are your top three. If you were trying to keep out Muslims, why did the top three not get included on the list? It wasn't a Muslim ban. In fact, it wasn't even a travel ban. I don't know why the hell we're calling it that. I don't know why the president foolishly echoes the words of his adversaries. When I was asked by One American News Network, how would I describe his executive order? Because it was an unwieldy term protecting the nation from foreign terrorist entry into the United States. I said, boy, that's too many words. And they didn't like the idea of calling it a travel ban. They said, what would you call it? And I thought about it. I was just getting off an airplane. I was heading to a speaking engagement in Montana. I was just getting off the plane when One American News called me up. I said, I know what. Why don't we call it what it is, an entry restriction, entry restriction. You see, now it makes sense. It's an entry restriction. It has nothing to do with Muslims. It has nothing to do with religion. And if you read the bill, it's all about the religion. We're not going to have religious bans. There's not one word in the executive order that talks about religion. Read it. It's black and white. And that's what angers me. 
If there's wiggle room and you want to lie, go for it. But there's no wiggle room because nowhere in the executive order is there any mention of any religion. And if this was truly about keeping out Muslims, why did the top three most populous Muslim-majority countries not be, why weren't they included? Because if that was the goal, that's what I would have done. Of course, I wouldn't ban anybody by religion. I think it's abhorrent. It flies in the face of our tradition of religious freedom and the First Amendment. But if that's the accusation, I want Chris Coons to explain why the hell Indonesia, India, and Pakistan were left off. Talk is cheap, as my father used to say. It's a how dare you moment. It's a how dare you. No wonder Chris Coons didn't want Mike Cutler to be asked any questions, because God forbid I would have told him what he didn't want to hear. He apparently likes to dabble in lies and propaganda and nonsense. People died on 9-11. People have died since 9-11. And most of the terrorists who've carried out attacks across the world today are using not airplanes but motor vehicles. And the Democrats are leading the charge for giving driver's licenses to illegal aliens who can't even prove who the hell they are. If you're concerned about terror attacks, and they are because they keep running to Washington, give us more money, give us more money, we're under the threat of terrorism. Then why are you giving driver's licenses to people who can't prove who they are, who could use that license to rent a truck and blow up a building? You think it's far-fetched? 1993, February 26th, that's what happened at the World Trade Center. Two illegal aliens, they violated their entry uh, standards, rented a truck, filled it with explosives, set it off, killed six people, injured over a 1,000, and created over a half billion in damages, and damn near brought the tower down sideways, and had they succeeded, their goal was to kill 250,000 people with a rented truck. So, of course, we give driver's licenses to people who can't prove who they are. We have no fly lists, ladies and gentlemen, but I've yet to see a no-drive list. When does it stop? When the hell does it stop? And you look at these universities and you think they're lily white and these are intellectual people. They must be dealing in facts. And I think most of them deal in uh, manure. Perhaps the reason that we're hearing so much from academia about the environment and fracking and all this other business is because of all the money they've been getting from Saudi Arabia and Russia because if they could get America to stop fracking, they would have us under their thumb. And what they've done in Russia and Saudi Arabia is to drop the price of petroleum. Very low. It's a tactic that was used by John D. Rockefeller to put his competitors out of business. He'd see a gas station open up. He'd buy the land next to the gas station. He'd put in his gas station, and he'd give the gas away for free. And then he drove that poor guy who put all of his life savings into that gas station out of business. No one will ever accuse John, Dal- John D. Rockefeller of being a nice guy. And once he put the guy out of business, then Rockefeller jacked that price of gasoline through the roof. And because there was no competition, because he eliminated the, con- the competition, he was able to soak the average driver for whatever it is he wanted. And he did this all over the place. The reason that the price, I think, has been driven through the floorboards, particularly by Russia, is to make America energy dependent on other countries. If you make gasoline too expensive, petroleum too expensive, fracking and shale oil production are no longer economically viable. And I assure you that if we get out of the business of shale, which is making us energy independent, 
and fracking, so we have to go back to other countries for energy, then we become vulnerable once again. And let's remember that these university professors are getting all those hundreds of millions of dollars perhaps to lie. It's happened before. We've got some professors sitting in jail right now for lying through their teeth because they took money from China and God knows where else. Who knows? Maybe pretty soon we'll get to see a whole bunch of professors not wearing their their gowns and being so uppity-uppity, but doing the perp walk in handcuffs. You know, I have an awful lot of respect for education. A couple of my kids are engineers. That was my dream. But without morality, what do we have? When you can be bought and paid for, you can't be trusted. That's the problem with politicians. They get campaign contributions that are nothing more than thinly thinly disguised bribes. We're in a dangerous era. This coronavirus should wake us up to that fact. And the fact that we are dependent on China, and China, by the way, is now claiming that somehow American military planted the coronavirus in China. If you think I'm kidding, go online and check it out. And that's who we're now relying on for 90 or 80 percent of our our antibiotics and, and drugs. If that doesn't keep you awake at night, folks, check for a flatline EEG because perhaps you can no longer fog a mirror. We need to reach out to our so-called representatives and wake them up and get them to understand that we're not the blind imbeciles that they've been playing us for. Wouldn't hurt to call up some of these wackaloo news agencies while we're at it and let them know that we know who they are, and they are straight out of 1984 in the Ministry of Truth. They're a bunch of propagandists. Democracy demands facts and the truth. That is why the First Amendment is the First Amendment. Freedom of speech equals freedom of thought, the ability to question and challenge. A long time ago, I said that Donald Trump wrote a book called The Art of the Deal. I'd love to write a book called The Art of the Question. Voltaire was right. You judge a person's intelligence by the questions that they ask. There's lots of questions that we need to be asking, and the sooner, the better. In a democracy, the citizens bear a huge responsibility. In fact, in a democracy, the title of citizen is the most significant title of all. Let's live up to our obligations. Let's remember that democracy is not a spectator sport. And let's realize that nothing less than the lives and the futures, not only of our nation, but our children and their children, are hanging in the balance. Please reach out to your neighbors. Have these conversations. Let's do it peacefully, thoughtfully, and in a fact-based manner. The facts, the truth, morality, and common sense are all on our side. Let's make use of it. Have a great weekend, everybody. Stay well. Be safe. And we'll see you next week right here on the Michael Cutler Hour. And please check out uh, the articles over at dmlnews.com and frontpagemag.com. Again, I wish all of you a great weekend. Stay safe.